from Grooveview Studios in Columbus, Ohio. This is Getting the Brand Back Together, a podcast exploring the interdisciplinary art of banding, branding, and business building. Rock and roll relic poet, writer, and brandist. I'm your host, Brad Cerconi. Today, we're joined by Bruce Garfield, the executive director of the Columbus Music Commission. Thanks for being here, Bruce. My pleasure. Great seeing you again. Likewise. Bruce, as you will learn in this podcast, has a remarkable legacy in the music business. And I think that Columbus is actually fortunate to have him be here. Certainly a gem. So thanks for being in Columbus, Ohio. It's great. It was a natural progression. I was attracted. I fell in love with Columbus. I told my wife I was having an extramarital affair. Her name was Columbus. (laughs) That's beautiful. I want to first, we're going to educate people for some nomenclature in the business because you and I will probably use some words that are specific to the trade that that, that you and I have spent many years in. But one of the things that's interesting about you is you started a role in the rock and roll business as a merchandising business, artist development, VP of A&R, artist management, creative marketer. And you use this other phrase that I absolutely love that I'd like you to talk about. That is that you are a career physician. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you came up with that phrase. (laughs) Well, first of all, I studied abnormal psychology in university, so I think it prepared me for a career working with artists and music. Right. But from the earliest days of my career, you basically had to learn what to do, what not to do. And as you learn more, you get to the point where you can tell artists or recommend what they should and shouldn't do. Sure. And through the years of being, you know, head of an artist development department at Capital and then A&R, you were really tied to the hip by the artist you signed. You had to be their godfather within the organization, as you well know. Yes. When I moved on to artist management, it even became more intense that you were the doctor. You could write the prescription, <laughs> but you couldn't send them to the, make them go to the pharmacy. Right. So I decided, Or clinic, depending on what they need. <laughs> exactly. So for me, it was, you know, wow, someone asked me, what do you do? And I thought for a minute, it just came out naturally. So I'm a career physician. What is a career physician? And I think I just explained it. I I am the person who has to either recognize, diagnose, and deal with any malady. Right. But then on the other hand, I'm a coach because that's the more of the positive nature of yes. it all. Yes. That's how I came up with yes. that. Well, it's brilliant. And um, of course, I found it comical because I know exactly what you're talking about being in the business. I want you to talk to me a little bit and our listeners about how you got started in the merchandising business. When you and I first had coffee, which I think we booked one hour and we spoke to each other for three hours because we realized we knew some of the same people in the business. Mm-hmm. And I think that you just like minds, you know, attract. You started off in the merch business. And you obviously worked with clients like Led Zeppelin, Cream, Hendrix, The Doors. Tell us a little bit how you got started in the merch business. That's just a fascinating story. The love of music is what opened up my career. In fact, I want to read a book that says, Blame It on Jimmy. I <laughs> was going to school in California. Yeah. And it was the era when music was evolving into the British rock scene and the San Francisco scene. Right. And youth had gotten a real voice. It wasn't just about pop music. Now, what do you mean by that? I love that you just said that. Youth got a real voice. Well, because people were writing songs about, bands were writing songs about things that were playing on their social consciousness. Jefferson Airplane, Up the up Against the Wall, right. MF, for 
you know, there was a civil rights movement. There was a war in Vietnam. Right. You know, there was a shift, a seismic shift in the, the generational shift, I should say. So those were things that were all kind of ringing my bell. Okay. I mean, I was going to school. I was studying psychology, but I also was very conscious of my draft status. Yeah. Because in those days, people were taking people with ailments. They just had to fill a quota. So I had gravitated. I was still living at home. And uh-huh. I gravitated towards, you know, hanging out in Hollywood and being at the clubs, which were just incredible. There were, you know, Sunset Strip was full of rock clubs. I know. Back in the day. Famous bands. Right were there. Kind of local bands. Right. So I ended up meeting a bunch of kids who moved to California from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yes. And the four of them were li- living in one house, small house, in Laurel Canyon. So, you know, weekends we'd get together and we'd listen to music. And one day I received a call and um, her name was Teresa Pensack. And she was the photographer working as a waitress and said, do you want to see Jimi Hendrix this weekend? I said, absolutely. (laughs) I might want to. But I can't see him listed anywhere. She's he's playing the San Bernardino County Fairgrounds in the agricultural auction house. No kidding. And Next to the farm animals. Right where the farm animals are auctioned. You know, it, it smelled like shit. It was right. shit. Right. And she said, but you can see them, but you have to sell posters, but you get paid. Okay. I said, hey. I'm in. Take me, take me. So I went and then, you know, we sold the posters wrapped up as people came in and then someone watched the posters and then you got to stay inside and we rotated at the end. They call the blow off. We were, you know, catch Jimmy Hendrix posters, et cetera. Well, we. Why were, do you call it the blow off? The okay. crowd is blowing out of the building. I got it. Got it. So that's an interesting a, phrase. I've never heard that. I love it. Uh, well, so <laughs> as we were counting back in the merchandise and the dollars, this fellow walks over to me with a big bushy beard and long hair, and said, "Hey, kid, I like the way you handle yourself." I'm Jerry Goldstein. I said, well, I'm Bruce Garfield. He said, here, take my business card. Call me and come to the office next week. And at that point in my life, Brad, the only office I'd ever been to was a doctor or a dentist and, and the principals once or twice. And I, I you know, I was, you know, dumb, dumbfounded, dumbstruck. And, 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 and I said, okay. So I called and made an appointment to go see him. Yeah. I went to Beverly Hills, California, and I walked in and I, Saw the things on the wall I'd never seen before. There were gold records. Yeah. There were you have a bunch of these now. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> but he had gold records and awards from ASCAP, and I had just at that point in my life I didn't know there was a business. I bought records. Right. I read magazines. I listened to the radio. Right. I saw you know bands when they would appear on television, but I never thought beyond that. Right. I never bothered to say what are those little words in parenthesis mean right i didn't stop to bother to read who was the producer or the songwriters how they made money what's the model there was i didn't know about a studio an engineer a console uh, a guy in a plant pressing records right right vinyl anything that was connected to i didn't know there was a business of music wow so now i'm curious and he said kid i like the way you handle yourself i own this poster company so but what are all these awards well i'm also a writer and a producer and he had written my boyfriend's back. Yeah. And I want candy. And he produced Hang on Sloopy. And, no kidding. Yeah. So he said, I want you to come to work for me full time. I'll teach you and you'll go on the road with these bands. And I said, well, 
I think my parents will shoot me. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not leaving school. So whenever there was like a long weekend or yeah. a holiday yeah. or the next summer when someone was going on the road, yeah. I'd go out for a weekend with Donovan or, okay. you know, Jimi Hendrix was, you know, having a four-day run on the West Coast. I'd go out on the road. Process would be sell the posters, count them in, count right. them out, give right. the money to the tour manager. Well, I was kind of drifting away from my studies at university and I was being swept away by the seas of change. And so he came to me one day and said, Bruce, you know, the cream are going out on their final farewell tour. I'd love you to cover it, will you? And I said, that was it. So I So what year is that? Give us a framework. That was... Or get close. 1969. Okay. And so... I was, you know, just in awe of the cream. I mean, I, right. you know, had all their records. I'd followed Eric Clapton right. with, so I just, that, that was it. So my job was to go on the road, count the posters out to the concessionaires, count them in, give the t- cash that night. Yeah. Cash that night. It's a cash business. To the tour manager and then wire the rest of the money home. Okay. I may add that the reason at that point in life in the business there was no merchandising business. Right. So if I walked up in a concert and took your picture of you and your band on stage, yes. you had no idea that I'd done it. Right. You had no approval. I would take it to someone, get it printed, sell so it to every pro- record store in the country. You wouldn't see a penny in right. royalties. Right. You wouldn't have any creative control. There you go. Right. Well, Jerry, being from the music business, had a revolutionary thought process. and said, well, if I make sign contracts with these artists like record contracts and pay them a royalty and do this all through your process. I'll be a market leader and treat the artist well. Exactly. And that's what he did. Right. So this finished this story. So I was on the road. I was too in awe of the band to hang out with Clapton or Jack Bruce. They'd wave hello at me as I was walking past (laughs) first first class to go back to the coach section. And I hung out with the opening act, a kid named Terry Reed and his tour manager named Richard Cole. Okay. So the tour was over. I cried the last night of that tour. I couldn't I un- just believe that I was I understand. there to see every single night their performance. Right, right. And I'm walking, it's a religious experience. Uh, I, I mean, I could still visualize every lick, every motion, I love that. every move, the Clapton or Baker or, right. you know, just to have them say hi to me was like, I right. sent me over the moon. Right. So I'm walking through the TWA terminal at JFK. Uh-huh. And I hear this. Can I curse on this? You absolutely. We, I, we. We approve. Okay. So I hear this guy, Garfield, you fucking wanker. And I'm like, this is 1969. I'm like walking through an airline terminal. I'm like, there must be someone else named Garfield here. Because right, because he it's be- not me. Turn around and in the distance, yeah. I see this gold tooth shining out of this smiling face. And it's Richard Cole, mm-hmm. the tour manager for the opening act, Terry Reed. Okay. He says, where are you going, Garfield? I said, I'm going back to Los Angeles. And you, he goes, Back to England. But, you know, do you fancy Jimmy Page? I said, oh, my God, I'm a Yardbirds fan. He goes, well, he's coming in in a month with his new band, Led Zeppelin, and I want you to come come, come down and see us. Oh. Uh, of course. I went to see the movie Blow Up five times just to see them break their guitar in that, in that scene. So I had become friends through working with Goldstein with Eric Burden from The Animals. Yeah. And he was a god to all those young English bands. Sure, so, sure. Icon. So, exactly. So when Led Zeppelin came down, they played the Whiskey A Go-Go. Yeah. And I had just, I had never seen Robert Plant, never heard of him. 
Jimmy Page playing a guitar with a violin bow, and yeah. this is just—they were amazed. Yeah. What the I, hell? I went up. This? I went up to meet them after yeah. the show. Richard introduced me, and I came up with Eric Byrne, and I told them about the posters. Sure. And they said, "Well, come on by tomorrow at the hotel and show us." So I showed them the Hendrix, and I showed them the Cream, <laughs> and I showed Led them Zeppelin the Zeppelin posters. Right. <laughs> they had just released their first record, and oh. and they said, "We love a man. We love a mate." And I said, well, we have this incredible photographer in Ron Raffelli here. Yeah. And the poses he did with Hendrix were amazing. And I told them how what the deal was like. And they were being ripped off like everybody else. Yeah. They said- You had to wait for them to make, get a revenue stream. Count us in. So we got the deal with them. We paid no advance. We just right. paid them cash on the road and yeah. they were sold in record stores. Well, I took that now that I'd gone full time to work for Jerry. Right. I would be sitting there like a uh, messenger boy. Like, do I have something to deliver to a record company? I've never been inside a record company. Can I please go? And I would sit there and read. In those days, it was Billboard, Record yeah. World, and Cashbox, the three yeah. trade I movies. remember Cashbox. I'd sit there and read the charts till I had them memorized. And the one day I just said to Jerry, how about if I try to get some other bands to sign for posters? Hey, kid, just do what you want. Merch deals. I signed three quarters of the bands in the world, top bands in the world within a year's period of time. The Jerry, loves, Jerry loves you. Yes. He's loving you then. Yes. The and doors, also found the doors. Uh, the doors, those days, Steppenwolf, I mean, Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Glenn Campbell. I mean, the right. list went on and on and on. To, to merch deals, all of those guys. No t shirts. Yeah. Just no, I, merch deals back in, in, in that day was a poster. Poster and right. then books. Right. And eventually, I found the group War for him because Eric Burden wanted a soul band. Right. And I just felt now I wanted to get more involved in music. And he said, no, no, stick to the posters. Stick to the posters. I ended up soliciting employment by one of the managers of one of the bands who we did posters for. And it basically led to succession of working for a record producer, working for a manager, then working to someone who's involved in the publishing business, then working for Blue Thumb Records, which was a very avant-garde independent label. I was kind of getting kicked not even kicked, but passed around. Uh -huh. <laughs> Brucey, come on, you're going to work for me. A party favor. Brucey, I'm stealing you from Krasnow. You're coming over here. And it was great. And it kept giving me more and more information and honing my skill set. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, I was working with Eric Burden and Jimmy Witherspoon, who were signed to Capitol Records. And I went to the president of the company, Capitol, mm -hmm. and I said, Don, who was it then? Don Zimmerman was his mm -hmm, name. Mm -hmm. I said, Don, I, I would love to come over and work for you guys. He said, wow, that's great. What do you want to do? I said, artist development. He said, well, Bruce, we, we, we just put Bob Dombrowski. Sorry, Bob, if you're listening. But we put Bob Dombrowski in that position like nine months ago. I mean, he was salesman of the year in right. Seattle. I said, that's what I mean. He doesn't know anything about the business. He was a salesman. Right. But they were a sales-oriented company. Gotcha. He said, well, I'll call him. He'll be thrilled. I said, no, no. I don't want you to call him. I want his job. He said, we love you, but that can't happen. Okay. Three months later, he calls me up and said, we'd like you to come over and want to talk to you. He said, we'd like to give you our publicity department to run. I said to him, well, I don't operate like your publicity department. I don't have a tea set in an office. I don't call journalists by dear critic or opinion maker. Right. I treat them like they're journalists, like they have a respect for their readership and their uh, their duty to their publishers and their stockholders. I said, so I'm a record man. And his response was, we don't want you to become us. We want us to become you. 
And that beautiful led, line. And that led me to a very long career there where Well, you be, eventually became vice president of AR at Capitol, didn't oh, you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And ran the East Coast office. The funny thing was that so I was working side by side with the guy whose job I originally asked him for. Right, right. And about four months into the gig, five <laughs> months into the gig, they asked me to come in on a Saturday. They said, We want you to know that we uh let Bob Dombrowski go yesterday, and we'd like to take you take over his department too. Uh-huh. Like can, you had mentioned in your right, quest. I, they said, but, you know, we can only offer you a token raise. At that point, you know, I was still, I guess, I don't know, my 20s, and I said, of course I'd take it. Right. What I realized years later, I should have said, well, I'm not going to give you token performance, so why should I take right. a well, token you, you raise? Became, you became wiser. Right. Right. But that's how, and capital, getting to capital, gave me the largest toolkit or rector set that I ever had in my life. They were so supportive and I made a big difference there. And it was because they saw me, what I didn't even see it myself at that uh-huh. point. I was just a kid from the Bronx who loved doing work and working with music and artists and doing my thing. Right. And they gave me all the free um, field running room I wanted. It was kind of the rope or room principle. Succeed, you get more room. Right. Screw up and you're going to get hung by the rope. Right, exactly. So So the reason I want our listeners to hear that story, Bruce, and I love it. And I also, I want to say this. Your passion today still about the music business is mine. I feel the same way. I mean, I think we're, it's a rough business, right? But we're fortunate to have experienced it. You for much longer than even me, but I've never stopped being an artist in one shape or another. The other thing I want to point out about that story is you actually became a brand inside the branded entertainment business. You became your own brand, right? Mm-hmm. Like even when you're saying, Brucey, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? And do you think rock and roll gave you that gumption? What gave you when you sat down and said to him, to Zimmerman, when you said, hey, I, I think I can, you know, do this role here. What, where'd that come from? That kind of confidence. It wasn't from any kind of training. It was from some kid who just wanted to, speak with off didn't even know what i was motivating me i was right. authentic right. i re, i i always felt that i was a team player right and i'd speak my mind sometimes you know i'd have to have my foot amputated from my mouth <laughs> but it was just kind of a, a sense of purity i'm just you know right. i was a kid i was a son of an alcoholic bartender from the bronx gotcha if you would have told me when i was 16 or 19 or 25 years old this is what you could do for the rest of your life. I would have scratched my head and said, what the hell are you talking about? Right, right. I don't get it. Right. What, what's that? Right. So I've always been the person to say what I mean without even thinking about, will someone feel impure? Sometimes think it's motivated improperly. Right. But it's passion. It's, it's passion. Yeah. Well, something I had a boss who said to me, Bruce, we'd love that you go right through the wall, but sometimes you have to realize there's a door there. <laughs> right, so use it. Exactly. So you brought up an interesting word that I want to talk about that you and I spoke before the podcast on some of these subjects that we wanted to touch today. And that is this idea of artist development. So you and I know what that term means, right? And we have nomenclature like A&R, which everybody, it means artist and repertoire. And then there's artist development. When When I think about the word artist development, and I want you to take our listeners through how you would define that because you lived it. We have a term in the business that I'm in now. So I spent 25 years in the banding business, in the entertainment business, and now I've been in the branding business. So I just added an R. It's very simple. (laughs) Wise move. (laughs) But my point to you is we talk about brand development because we are developing 
like developing an artist, which is what I want to hear from you about, about developing a brand. So we see a potential in a brand oftentimes a CEO doesn't, or they want to know why, why are sales flat? Why can't we generate anything in this marketplace? Our competitive climate has changed. Another product already filled that gap. We have to change all the R&D we've been doing for three years, and we have to move it 10 degrees to the left, right? Because we've got to have a channel. I took a lot about what the rock and roll business taught me and through artist development, promotion, publicist. My publicist was Bryn Bridenthal. Just thought of her the other day and sent her an email, but don't know if I heard back from her, but she's busy making glass jewelry in Northern California. I know, and she's right, the, the greatest publicist Absolutely. of rock and roll, right? And she taught me so much. And a lot of it was about positioning. So I'd like you to tell our listeners, when we use the phrase artist development, you actually did it. I was one of the artists that someone like you was being shaped by. In a, I don't mean that in a positive way. What is artist development? I guess it's a sense of being able to assess what makes an artist special and to preserve that and prevent them from mission drift, to be able to... So, excuse me, but what you just said is branding. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you said it. That is branding, artist development. But the way you just said it back with those three phrases that you just used gave me goosebumps because that's branding. Because they don't want to drift from their mission. You're keeping them consistent. And you use the word unique, which is differentiation. Right? Exactly. Okay, go ahead. I didn't want Should to I be you interviewing that. you, I think? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. So, you know, you sit there. I'll take you through the process. Whether you're a fan or someone in business, you see something, whether it's a product. It could be a, a house that's painted a certain way. Right. It could be a Federal Express envelope or whatever. And you say, wow, that brings my bell. That's really unique. You need to start with a seed that doesn't grow from nothing. I love it. And then you basically focus on what's so special, what attracted me. Can it translate directly to somebody else? Right. Or does it need a little bit of uh, fine-tuning right. for them to see it? Maybe they need eyeglasses, so I'm going to provide those eyeglasses. Right. And then to work with the source, the artist, on playing and building upon that. Nothing nothing that's insincere or contrived. Or manipulative. No, because people want authenticity. Authenticity, They want to feel connected to it. So it would be taking a a young band, for instance, and you say, well, they look great. Oh, no, this guy looks like he's wearing stuff that he thought was cool five years ago. It's not happening. He he went to his big brother's closet and took up the, the leathers he used to wear. Right. And maybe he just needs a little bit of a push or just to re- redirect him. Right. But you, there's got to be something unique. Yes. And then you start to work with it. Right. It's like, you know, with a, a musician that might need to practice more. Mm-hmm. It might be someone that should go get a better haircut. You're right. It might be someone that you can tell you can dress down. You don't have to try to be a rock star. Right. And we're going to talk about that with Bob Seger because uh, you taught me that. You have to be who you are. Right. So you you build on that. And what's the story? What's the interesting story? And what's the angle? Exactly. But someone, everyone wants to have something appeal to them. And I always find that there's, you know, several, there's several routes to appeal. There's sonic, that's right. audio, right. there's visual, and then there's your heart. What gets you and pounds your chest? Right. What do I feel about the person? Right. What is their music and their ambiance and Everything combined, that hits, that goes to your heart. You go, wow, I love this. I'm on this. I'm, right. I'm supporting this. This rings my bell. It pushes my buttons. It does all the above. And then you're, well, you're a branding expert. Right. You know, you just 
take this and you build upon it. Wow, these kids look great. We need to have money for a video. Right. Well, how much money do we have to spend? I don't know, but we need money to be able to portray <laughs> exactly. this the right way. Exactly. You know, I don't, don't care the budget. This is what needs to happen. Or, or, well, wait a minute. Here's your budget. I don't need that much. Why would you not need that much? I said, I don't want to make an overly blown out, right. overproduced thing and have a quarter of a million dollar doorstop. Exactly. I just want a great live video. So forget the quarter of a million. I'll take 50000 and do the same thing. So, And it'll affect the band and the brand of the band better. Absolutely. Right? It'll be more authentic, is your point. Absolutely. You know, I may have told you, we'll get to Duran Duran later, but it's just clocking. What makes them different? When I started in A&R Capital and I yeah. signed a lot of bands that were breaking ground, I'd have other managers or managers or other artists come to me and say, well, you know, I'm just like so-and-so. I said, well, that's why I'm not interested. Because I'm not interested what was. I'm not interested what is. I'm interested in what's going to be. I love it. So that is brand differentiation. That's positioning a product, right? And... Uh, well, you and I, you're, you're going to tell me, you're going to tell us today some fascinating stories about that. I know a few of my own from either playing with those bands, like I was fortunate enough to open up, We were, the toll was to open up for the Ramones. That, yeah, when Gary Kerfurst was still alive, their manager, and Rosenblatt knew Kerfurst. Uh, that was actually going to be our first manager, but then we ended up with, we chose Freddie DeMann, Madonna's manager. Two good uh, players they in were the business. Good, good choices. We had good, we right, we had some good cards. But we were fortunate enough to play with the Ramones and talk about inventing a unique channel, right, of punk music and the urgency of rock and roll. What those guys taught me could happen in two and a half minutes changed my world from a brand perspective, more than even a band perspective, the impact it had on audience. I also love that you brought up this idea of heart. So in branding, we say, suspend the mind so the heart can follow, so the mind doesn't get in the way, the passion for the brand. If you think of Levi's, uh, Nike, Tiffany's, what you just described of a band's unique position and how it makes you feel, even when you see it, I would tell people that's exactly what a great brand does, right? So we were talking briefly about this and you brought up some of the bands that you found, work with, and developed artist development, right? That's what you were doing. Tell us a little bit that you shared with me briefly the other day. Tell, tell the listeners a little bit about some of these bands and how you helped in artist development and what I would call band and brand development. Like Bob Seeker. let's start there. Well, when I got to Capitol, running the press department, what I did was I insisted they give me the bio, the photos, and the albums by every one of the 70 artists on the roster. And... I've made my own choices, what I thought were really worthy artists, because everyone signs some things that are not Questionable. up to your own opinions. <laughs> they, that's a great way to, to state it. <laughs> so they said, well, you know, Bob Seger is going to release this double live bullet album in the next quarter. Yeah. And um, they kind of brushed over it because it was a live album. Sure. A double live album. Right. And I don't think Peter Frampton had either happened at that point or not. Not yet. But, and Bob hadn't had had one hit single like you know, probably in 1972 or something called Rambling Gambling Man. And it was called the Bob Seeger System. I didn't even know who it, it was a he or what they were. Yeah, I didn't know it was called the Bob, Bob Seeger System. Huh? Right. Really? So I then said I'm taking the next four weeks and I'm going to go visit every artist that's on the road on the label. So I went to see Bob Seeger. By the way, people in the brand world, this is called marketing field research. 
<laughs> I, I went to see him and, you know, he had scruffy haircut, scruffy beard. Right. He was, he wore clothing from Kmart. Right. And, 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 but it was a ragtag band of boys from Michigan, you know, right. blue collar yep. working families. Right. But I loved his passion and his sound of his voice and his songs were really descriptive. You know, there were musical diaries. Yeah, and they were more like everyday little, there were everyday, there was the everyday man poem. Exactly. Right, right. Absolutely, put perfectly straight. So I came back and I, I said, what, where, where, where am I going to hang my hat? How am I going to deal with this? And I went to Bob and his manager, who's had his entire career still managed by Punch Andrews. They're both from, you know, Detroit. Right. And I said, Bob, give me the next year of your life. And in a year, if I don't elevate your career substantially, you, know, you, uh, you can lose your pointed boot up my ass. Okay. That's it. He said, So you right. put that challenge on yourself yeah. to him. He said, all right, Garf. All right. So I said, <laughs> so now how do I put across to the media? Right. This is before internet. This is right. before really computers were like the size of a truck sitting in a in a warehouse. Exactly. Large universes I had, had them. I had a dresser graph plates, you know. So <laughs> I figured, I decided I would write a letter because I had just taken over the press department to differentiate from my predecessor, addressing them as dear opinion makers, dear critics. And I started what I'd call the dear journalist letter. And I figured I would only champion those artists and events that I thought were worthy of their attention and that I felt would be respectful and worthy of their space, their print space. Right. So you're already showing them respect and what you're vetting to them. Oh, absolutely. Right. And I put that in this letter. Yeah. Know, please excuse the, the general nature of dear journalists, but I look at you as a journalist. Right, right. I have respect for you. Right. I, will I love not, it. I will not feed you flowers. I will only feed you facts. Right. So don't expect what my predecessor did. No candy boxes here. No. So my first letter, dear journalist, I want to speak to you about something near and dear to me, and it's a person named Bob Seeger. And I wrote to them how Bob could tour, he could tour more cities in Michigan and Florida than other artists could tour from America. And I said, wow, he's America's all-American rock and roll hero. He's the son of an assembly line worker. From who, Detroit. Who's father abandoned them and his mother worked on the assembly line and he did odd jobs to help support the family and his younger brother. He bought his clothing at Kmart. He went running in like an industrial area to do his, you know, his jogging. Right. I said, he's got his old hand dog, Boris. He lives simply. But that's the beauty of Bob Seeger. And I just kept pounding it and please listen and, and you know, this is what I think. And then the, I guess the kicker of the story is a year later, because you said, give me a year. I said, give me a year. A year later, there was a Time, Time Magazine had done an article, a feature on Bob, which was like, wow, for me as a publicist. Oh, you're a proud father. And exactly. And it was a double you know, truck fold yeah. of the middle I section. I know the cost of that. And it was in color. And it was a picture of Bob Seeger on an old beaten up couch with a guitar and his dog. Boris. Boris. I wrote a letter. I well, we sent a telegram to Boris Seeger. I said, dear Boris Seeger, it's great to see your picture in Newsweek or Time Magazine. I have one question. Who the fuck's the guy with the guitar? <laughs> oh, wow. And then Bob, you know, we really had a great friend. But that was a touchstone moment for the brand. 
Oh, yeah. Right? There was a touchdown moment for me as a young publicist. Yeah, because you did it. You I, did it. I believed in him. He ended up writing me into songs on his albums. And, you know, uh, he would come to town. He'd, Garf, Garf. It's Bob. Come on. Let's get together. So, so what room are you? He goes, I'm registered under Fred. I won't mention. He still Fred. uses the he name today. Fred something. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it was just such a, an important event for me. And I right. hadn't seen Bob in 30 years. And year before last, he went back out on the road. I went to see him at um, the Major v Arena Casino in um, Connecticut. Okay. I went back and seen him in 30 years. It was wow. Bruce Gardgarf. Got on stage. And he said, I want to dedicate this next song to a real good friend of mine who's here. Because it was during his reign working with me that I wrote this song. And... It was just, oh, my God. That's unbelievable. <clears throat> it just touched me so much. And right. He still doesn't do email. He doesn't right. Right. doesn't have a, you know, he's just just Bob. He's just Bob. Yeah. And one of the best live performers, so authentic. Bruce Springsteen's favorite artist used to be probably still is Bob Seger. That's and, unbelievable. And, and vice versa. Wow. Because they both are just these two kids. Right. You know, and, and have this incredible energy and lust for life. And, and great storytellers. Great storytellers through music. Absolutely. Now tell me, so you, so that is, that to you, that's artist management, right? And that's positioning and that's branding. And you were doing that from your role at Capital, from the promotions or publicist point of view. But it's still development because you, as you said, give me a year. And I can elevate, I think the word you used was elevate, right? The band and the brand and the career. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why, I'm sure that's why it meant so much to Bob and that you took the time to do that. And by the way, that note you wrote back to the journalist is hysterical. Now, take us on a different plane, though, when you're faced with other problems like Duran Duran. So now I moved to a and I had Are you VP at this point or just no, in no, a &R? No, no, I'm just getting there. You're I was still in there. the press and arts development department. Okay. And I decided that I'd publicized and developed everything on the roster. And there was a bunch of crap. Right. from a previous regime, and I went to... Leftover food on the plate. Right. <laughs> so I went to Zimmerman again, and the head of A&R, Rupert Perry, and I said, guys, I want to move into A&R. Forget it. You're staying there. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I a couple months later, I had a dream, and I went to Rupert Perry, a staunch Englishman, you know, yeah. came from EMI, and yeah. of course the pod, and said, Rupert, I had a dream last night that I... Was given a shot in A&R. This is exactly what it was, Garfield. It was a freaking dream. <laughs> Go back and I said, well, Rupert, if I don't get this job, you didn't give me a shot, I'm going to leave. Of course, I didn't even know what I would do. I just, right. like a kid, threw it out. I'm yeah, going to leave. That's your threat. So, um, it'll never happen, Garfield. So, a week later, I get called. You've heard this before. Yeah, I get a call into the president's office. And there's Zimmerman, Don Zimmerman, and Rupert looking at me and laughing. They said, all right, you got your shot. You're now... Director of Artist Dub Acquisition, Talent Acquisition. Oh, yeah, yeah, Talent Acquisition. I said, well, we need to be put into the youth music business. So I signed, at the time, the Knack, my Sharona, the Motels, Missing Persons, and then we had a... Oh, and now hold on a second. Yeah. Now listen, that's unbelievable. So you get in, the Missing Persons, unbelievable brand. The Knack, my God, right? Let me ask you this question. If you were to talk to me about, and we're going to get back to Duran Duran, but... You want to talk to me about the Knack and My Sharona. What was that brand? What, what, what's the brand of the Knack? The brand was, first of all, that they were ferocious on stage. They had a look of all their own. They did. They did. Bit, they did a bit try to emulate the Beatles. A little bit, but they, 
had their own style about that. Exactly. And 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 the black and white photography. Love that. They, they were ferocious live. The story of the backstory of that is Okay. I didn't I, know they were ferocious live. Oh my God. They were incredible. Incredible really? musicians. Okay. This backstory was being running artist development yeah. and press, I was responsible for the payment and the procurement of every bar tab in the United States the Capitol Records paid for. Every concert oh ticket. God. Every concert ticket, every bar tab. In those days, you no, toured, seriously. Yeah, every That is hysterical. So how, what, in a week or a month, what's the largest tab? Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, what do you be, think it was? There would be 10 grand in drinks at a, for one, you know, opening at a club. Yeah, it 10 grand. 15000 $20,000 for a big party. Right. But there was, the money was there then. Right, I and, know. And you had, it was profuse. We had 12 branches around the country. Right. Nine of them major cities. Right. And every time an artist went through the town, you had to have a party. You had to have an after show <laughs> reception. Here's and, 15 grand. And you invited Every single member of the retail community, right. the, all the media people, Press, everybody, radio, everybody, right. and it was just that way. Right. So I basically had the control of that budget, and I also had the money to support promoters okay. when they needed a little extra marketing dollars. Sure. So I was the friend of all the promoters yes, you and were. the club owners. Yes, you were. So when I transferred into A and R, yeah, I just went back down that road and said, "Look, if you hear of any great bands or anything we're looking let for, let me know. Let me know." Hello, Bruce. It's David at Starwood. There's a young band he'll call The Knack, and they're amazing. Out of where? Los Angeles. So I went to see them, and I was blown away. And they now started, a, they would tour Los Angeles. One week, they would play The Starwood. The next week, they would play The Troubadour. The next week, okay. they played The Whiskey Go-Go. The next yeah. week, they, and they would sell out every week. A different because band. they were so phenomenal live. Absolutely. And they had this look and there was nothing right. like that. Right. It's like a, it's like a, an edgy beetle. Yeah, and my Sharona was just so contagious. It was created a involuntary response. <laughs> exactly. So that is the perfect phrase. So I started to pursue them and a couple of other guys in the company. We were, you know, just myself, a guy named Bruce Raven mm-hmm. and an a, a, a album promotion guy. Yeah. And this, Went on and on for months. Every, in those days, there were all these labels were separate. There must have been 20 different labels. Wasn't that fun, though, to have those label wars when we had that many labels? It was incredible. Right? They would literally, Doug Figer sat on that stage at the Troubadour with the heads of Warners, the heads of Atlanta, Clive <laughs> Davis, and all these people in the, sto- in the, in the audience because people were foaming at the mouth to Simon. He right. said, he pointed to Clive Davis, who was sitting with a suit and tie, and yeah. said, I don't hear the sound of the van in the suit and tie applauding. If he doesn't, I don't hear that sound of his applause. He won't hear the sound of the pen on the paper. Wow. I couldn't believe he even said that. So it's a threat. Yeah. It's a, it's a performance threat. I was up in the dressing when the other label people would start to come up. Yeah. I would just be sitting in the dressing room right. with the band. Right. Warner Brothers and Columbia and all the labels walked in. So finally, I decided the only way to get them was to bring the entire company to the party. Okay. And we ended up signing So that's signing. what you did. Yeah. And we ended up signing them. Um, they wanted their photo taken at the Hollywood Bowl. I refused to do it, but we did the signing photo on the roof of the Capitol building. And here's a perfect example of a band gone wrong. They had a manager, they had three managers shortly before the signing. Then there was two, then there was one. He was a megalomaniac and he dis 
disenfranchised them from the entire company, from all the promoters. He just took this incredible uh, Machiavellian yeah. ambiance on yeah. and said, Egocentric. Oh, you do this. Well, is how it does. Right, he was right. dictating the terms of the minute. No so, collaboration. No, this, I, I really called him in my office and said, what are you doing? Right. You were signed based on this harmonious family convergence of emotions for you. Right. And now you're treating these people like shit. Right. What, are you, what What's with you guys? And sure enough, after that first record was huge and they released the second album, it all backfired. Right. The minute there was the slightest hiccup, people said, that's it. Right, right. There's where the, the manager, uh, the leader of the band offstage, if you will, lost the consistency, the mission, and, and what the brand was all about, right? Didn't allow that brand to, to do what it naturally wanted to do. Well, he made it. It was like fo the psychological term, folia de, the folly of two. Yes. Where one person adapts the other person's psychosis yes. and they live happily ever after in a, po <laughs> a pool of extreme psychotic affection. <laughs> so he um, he and the head of the band, Doug Figer, collaborated. Yeah. They were like, uh, no, tickets cannot be sold on in those days, Bass Ticketmaster. So this is a outlet. form of brand cancer. Yeah. Only tickets can only be sold at the box office. They wanted to have... A, a huge, you know, a rush to the box office. It worked in New York. We had police on horseback. They were trying to emulate the Beatles. Beatles. And then when tickets didn't get sold right. well, they said, oh, tell them they can put them back on the Bass Ticketmaster. And I know promoters went, you know what? Screw you. Right. Right. Screw you. Right. You got to know that kind of stuff in the entertainment business. It's a small world out there. I got Bill Graham. I used to call the promoter and say, get with this He's a, band now. He was a pretty damn good promoter. No kidding. <laughs> so I called Bill and I said, Bill, there's a band we just signed called The Knack. You need to play them. Right. Before they had a record out. Yeah. He and, I um, can't remember, his right here, Danny Shear. Yeah. Played them at Zellerback Hall at UC Berkeley. Sold out. I flew up for the show. Sold it out. And gave them a bonus. Gave them a bonus. Wow, you don't hear of that. When they signed the deal and the record came out, they didn't give the shows to Bill Graham. And I said, what? Bill Graham called me screaming. If I held the phone, no, no, arms, yeah, I could yeah, hear him screaming. Yeah, yeah. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Bill, Bill, I had nothing to do with this. Perfect example. What would divert you from going with doing the right thing. Exactly. Uh, again, this comes back to band and brand authenticity. Just like we recognize in, in business brands, right? When Jenny's Ice Cream had uh, the bout, two bouts with Listeria, they didn't throw out just the disinfected ice cream. They got rid of it all and got all their control standardization under control. They went over the top in curing the problem so that the love affair could be there between them and the consumer. It's the opposite in the next story. Now, tell us, though, how the medium was the mission, the medium that you chose with Duran Duran. Well, we had our, we were, Capitol Records was owned by an English company called EMI, which had been in the music business. Sex for, Pistols label. Exactly. X label. But so, and they were a privately held company. And they had a great A&R department. And because we were Capital and EMI America, the two Capital Rec EMI labels, when they signed a band, they offered it up to both of us. My predecessors hardly ever got on airplanes. Okay. And um, I got this record. And I said, wow, I like this record. It's you know, kind of 
got me going. <laughs> it's called. I, so I got on a plane. I went to see two artists in England. It was. I went to see Duran Duran at the Rum Runner. It was a club owned by their managers. Okay. And they were boys just like really just out of art college. All right. They, you know, I used to tease that Nick Rhodes probably had color coding on his keyboards <laughs> so he could figure out what note to play. But I saw I, this. I actually did that on my first record. Really? Yeah. I, I, Rosenblatt was there and I was playing a song called Soldier's Room. Then we're back to your story. And I know that it had a C and a D and a G in it, but I didn't know the picking part with this hand. So I put duct tape, gaffer's tape in different colors, red, blue, silver. And they would say into the mic, silver, red, <laughs> blue. <laughs> really? Like, yes, yes. I'm limited, Bruce. I'm very limited. I'm only good at two things, banding and branding. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so, go ahead, go ahead. So I went up with a bunch of different EMI executives to right. see them play at this club, the Run Run in right. Bur Birmingham. And I was like, my God, look at these hairdos. They're really spiky. Because, you know, in Britain, kids are, you know, It's fashion forward. Music. Exactly. They don't have money. So yeah. it would be like, a social thing would be offering someone a cigarette yep. those days. Yep. Or, <laughs> you know, offering someone a cup of tea. Right, right. Or their fashion statements, which were not expensive, and then with hair, or piercings. Right. Or ripped jeans, whatever right. it was. I said, well, these guys are great. And I saw the video they made for girls on film. It was like women were boxing. And, the, and I said, I've never seen anything like this. It's otherworldly. And these guys are really handsome guys. Yeah, yeah. They look like runway models. Yeah. So I went, came back to America and I said to the, my bosses and the, the, the main department heads, I said, I've got to sign this band. I didn't play the video for them first. I played the music and they, and they didn't even like the video when they saw it. Oh, it's so weird. So the story goes, that myself and the head of album promotion, Ray Tuscan, believed blindly in this. Okay. And we were getting some resistance at radio. Okay. But we'd have a big mark, you know, weekly marketing meetings. Sure. And when people would go around the table and report radio sales, we kept getting reports that were selling in Dallas, Texas. But we Duran Duran. Right. Selling in Dallas, Texas. But let's Radio, do we have an airplay there? I don't think we have an airplay. No, we don't. How the hell is that record And there's selling? no, there's no internet. There, there's no Spotify at the time. Nothing. So we're like, we need to find out why is this record selling in Dallas, Texas? Report comes back. It's only selling in these sections of the city. We need Tom, get Tom Tilton on the phone. Find out what's going on. <laughs> well, you know, they put in this cable here and it's got in these sections of the city, it's got that thing MTV on it. That thing. That thing MTV. <laughs> And it was MTV, the visuals for the MTV generation that were making people go out and said, I need to get this because they were seeing a brand for the first time. time. And a were, lifestyle. Absolutely. It's a lifestyle brand that's a band. All right. And then as, as MTV populated the, uh, you know, the, the video uh, networks, they exploded. Right. In fact, the first Rockin' New Year's Eve, MTV uh, New Year's Eve show was... Duran Duran. Wow. And they just, they became the darlings of the MTV generation. I think that, you know, the choice of, do, of breaking that brand, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, that it's sonic, it's visual, and it's heart. And you chose, in that, in that case, maybe the band, like, like we had talked about, maybe the band couldn't have been broken audibly, but it could certainly be broken visually. It opened up an entire new lane. Everybody, it, everybody witnessed it in the business. And the, the course, I love the way you put that. It does open up an entire new lane that we hadn't even thought about of how to break, right? 
I remember like it was yesterday, that meeting saying, how the hell is this record selling? We have no airplay. Right. And then, well, they put in this cable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tell us one more story with, with banding to branding that I think does a nice synopsis. And Lotto's, you know, who she was with. And you, again, this is a, this is a Bruce artist, and that is Grace Jones. Grace Jones is, I guess, maybe it was good because I was living in New York at the time. And mm -hmm. I moved from L.A. to New York to run the, you know, still A&R, but run the East Coast office for Capitol. Right. And a part of the reason I wanted to move there was because I felt I was continually traveling to New York and London. And I felt that L.A. at the time was about as deep as a glass of water, culturally speaking. And um, there was no theater. There was, you know, a couple of museums. And what year is this? Early 80s? A, late? Very, very early 80s. So, being in New York, now I'm in the fashion capital, and there's, you know, the, the new music scene is happening there, and there's, you know, all these the bands. Well, New Wave is, it's, it's 81, 80, right? right. Um, so, I'm in, you know, CBGBs, I'm hanging out, and I, being also a big fan of Island Records, mm -hmm. I loved when I got turned on to Grace Jones, pull up to the bumper, and the album cover with that, you know, was exacto diced compiled, you know, bizarre neckline and hairstyle with this, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. She looked like she came from another planet. Planet, right. Grace came from the fashion world you know, with that hairstyle, the long neck and yeah. high cheekbones and the yeah. super dark gorgeous, skin color. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Exactly. So I started, you know, meet new attorneys in New York and I met this attorney, he's an older guy, I said, hey, I represent Grace Jones. I said, good, I want to meet her. <laughs> so good for you where she at right so um <laughs> jules kurz was his name so uh, the disco thing was still happening in new york but it right. was not in studio 54 it was down in the paradise garage right and, you know i remember someone someone introduced me to her grace and i got along i went out we started hanging out at night i remember going to and i figured i was going to pursue her to sign her okay but she was signed to blackwell right I remember going to the Paradise Garage. With hard a, pursuit. This is a hard pursuit, people who are listening. Major hard. Yeah, this is not, this is war. And this is a big, you may hang out with her at five in the morning. She says, oh, where are you going? I said, I got to go home. I got to go to work for it. She says, oh, darling, stay. The sun isn't up yet. <laughs> so, I mean, literally, I'd be sitting at a table with her. And at that table would be Andy Warhol, yeah, and yeah. Keith Herring, and Azadina Lai, and Jean-Paul Gaultier. And I'd be saying, how the hell did I get at this table? Right, right, right. You know, she was just so in this world of yes. fashion. And, and yet um, from out of the world. You right. know, from another world. But we hit it off just because I, I was enjoying the scene. We remember right. seeing Madonna for the first time at the Paradise Garage. Yeah. You know, if you couldn't dance, it didn't matter because there were so many people dancing at the Paradise Garage that you were part You were of barely the, moving. The you were a penguin. It was the first place I've ever seen a metal detector as you walked in. Right, this, right. It was a garage. It was right. a parking She said, Grace, this girl is really good. She goes, trash, she'll never happen. That's, That's what she Madonna. said about Madonna. Yeah, she came out doing- <laughs> I bet, I think Freddie Demand and Rosenblatt have something to say about it. She wasn't that. signed yet. She was on a, she got- pushed, She wasn't signed yet. Rosenblatt she, hadn't signed her. No, she got pushed out on a big double or king-size bed with white, uh, white and pink satin sheets mm -hmm. and a brass headboard and was in a nightie. Right. And Grace says, trash. I said, no, right. there's something about this girl. But anyway, so I worked and worked and worked to try to sign her. And How long does this continue? This show close to two <laughs> years. And I finally had to take her on a tour of nine or 10 of countries where we have offices yeah. throughout Europe. 
so she could meet everybody face to face. And I'm going to—I won't even get at the story of that trip, right? But it was so she was, would feel comfortable. That totally, was her reasoning, totally. right? But she'd show up at a dinner three hours late, and then people would be biting their nails for itching, right. and then go, right. "Darling, I'm so sorry, I was right. late." Right. And then all that anxiety would evaporate. Go away, right. exactly. So. You know, I figured that she was such a brand and she hadn't been exposed in a broad sense. So it ended up that we signed her. The first record we did was called Slave to the Rhythm, which basically was a, a one hour long single. It was. <laughs> it was. <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. And then, that's, and then I met Nile Rogers at the time, who was, you know, became the major producer and right. songwriter. So I, he and I have a great friendship because I put him in the studio with Grace to do an album. And then I put them together with Duran Duran to do the reflex. And, you know, my relationship that's best of all that still exists with Niall today. Right, right. But so that's, you know, to me, it was, again, Grace Jones. The label didn't understand it. I said, she's ahead of her time. Yeah, she was. Time will catch up with her. Right. And we did great business with her. Right, right. And so, again, back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast, you saw that uniqueness that, um, how do we say it, other world eclectism, right? That's what it was. She was, and you were able to market, promote, and brand that, and package it, productize it without, uh, again, I don't mean that in a negative way, I mean that in a positive way. When I talk about moving brands forward, I talk about, you know, creating customer preference and exploiting them positively. And that's what you're doing. You're helping that artist through that artist development for being a VP of A&R or an A&R person. That's exactly what you were doing. So she came with the, the goods. When, you know, sometimes it's not, you don't create the goods. You just recognize it. I always say to people. And bottle it up. I said, isn't that why God invented managers and coaches? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> just to recognize it. Tell us, I like to ask, thank you for your time today, by the way. My we're, pleasure. We're going to have you back because I know that we're just touching on some of the stories. When you look back over all these years. So if we look back the first day that you told us the story, you know, when uh, as you're going to school and you don't want to tell your parents, hey, look, I'm, I'm waiting for the blow off and you're selling posters, to now as the executive director at the Columbus Music Commission, that's what, four decades? Five? Five. Oops. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. If you were to boil that down, and I know that's hard because you probably have 5X the stories I have, what's the one thing that rock and roll has taught you? Gets me out of bed every morning feeling that today will be a better day than yesterday. Wow. Well said. Yeah, so I've never heard an answer that optimistic, that, but that shows your passion for uh, the entertainment business. That's much appreciated. As I appreciate you. It's great to have this chat with you. <laughs> yes, you too. Thanks again for being on uh, Getting the Brand Back Together, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.